Welcome to Breaking Bad News, Apron Food PR's podcast about food brands, recalls, withdrawals, alerts and issues, and the way they're treated in the press and on social media. Welcome to this edition of Breaking Bad News. I'm Jeff Hahn. I'm joined by the one person in the world who loves a good crisis more than me. She's got a twisted mind, but she's my co-host, Jenny Gregorsik. Hi, Jenny. Hey, hey, Jeff. It's great to see you and a happy, happy new year to you. Yeah, happy new year. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. I think, you know, 2020 is going to be a really great year. Well, who knows what's to come, but um, we're looking forward to it very much. There's so much going to happen in the year ahead that it's going to be one of those, I think, that we're going to learn new things about the food industry that we've never known before. Yeah, you never know what could what could happen in the food space. It's always changing and evolving and lots to look forward to for sure. And you know what else I am really stoked about this year? That is your book, Breaking Bad News. It's coming out and it's going to hit bookshelves, what, in April, right? Mm, April, May, if we're lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, we've been working on this project now for seven years. Can you believe that? Oh and man. It's finally on the, right on the cusp. The, the book is at the printers. That's the good news. Oh man. I can't wait to see the, see the first copy. Can you give our listeners just a, a sneak peek into what they might expect into this seven year labor of love? <laughs> yeah, I think um, if I were to summarize Breaking Bad News in total, it's um, really starts with the pain point from our listeners' point of view. It's uh, when things go wrong, what do we do? What do we say? How do we say it? And gosh, in today's uh, pressure-packed media environment, we don't have much time. So the, the gist of Breaking Bad News is in the this centerpiece model, and you know I'm a models-based thinker. I'm always thinking in diagrams. Uh, This model called reputation dissonance shows, hey, look, when you get a bad news break, you do five things. In sequence, do them well, and you're going to come out of that bad news situation pretty much in control of your narrative. Very cool. Can you elaborate what those five things are? Sure. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about each one of them. Um, The first is activating your rapid response team. And I sometimes get asked the question, hey, what's the thing that um, organizations or brands do the worst when it comes to crisis communication? Sometimes it's their message, but oftentimes it's what you can't see. It's that the activation of their rapid response team is like a Keystone Cops episode. They're just all over the place. No one knows where to meet. They don't know what um, conference call number to call into. They have no idea who's the decision maker, especially because bad news always comes at the worst times. Um, They don't have a practiced understanding of how to work together. So here's a situation, especially inside the small culture of a rapid response team that um, all of a sudden you find uh, factions set up and infighting inside the teams. It's because they don't have, they're not practiced at uh, working together in pressure. So so activating the team is really the first big one. And you've seen it too. You've been in on those calls and in those war rooms. And 
it's a, it can be a damn mess. Yeah. I think your point about decision makers is a really important one because so many times there's not clarity on who the decision maker is. The decision maker isn't in the room when messaging is being developed and it can make for a really challenging circumstance. I also find too, um, if the rapid response team hasn't come together and um, really decided on their tolerance for risk, that can oh. also present some challenges. You know, yeah. if you've got a legal team on one side of the table that wants to say no comment and a PR team on the other side that wants to say everything. They, um, they want to hold a press conference. Exactly, exactly. It can make for a really challenging, really challenging circumstance. So I, I've been there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if, if the activation of the team is the first most important step, then the other four components fall in line in rapid succession. The first is the issuing of a holding statement in a fast moving uh, environment, fast moving situation. What you wanna be able to convey to the external audience is, hey, we're here, we understand, we are working it. It's nothing more than that. Um, what you're doing there is setting up a, uh, con you're conveying, especially to the media, that you've got a, a point of contact, that there is a central body, a central mind working an issue. That holding statement doesn't have to be complicated. It's one of the things that puts the brakes on conjecture and the loss of the narrative uh, because there's a vacuum of information. After that, you flip into what we, our three M's technique, uh, message. And there's a couple of different ways, a couple of five different ways to construct a message, particularly if you're getting blamed and you're gonna accept that blame or you're not gonna accept that blame. Um, messenger, and this is where our uh, colleague and pal Russ Ray uh, really comes into play. Russ teaches people about how to deliver a message, especially on camera, through his predictive interviewing model, prominently featured, by the way, in Breaking Bad News. <laughs> and so we got message, messenger, and then we got to figure out how do we get the word out? What's the method of delivery? And you and I just touched on two ends of it, Jenny. No comment is a viable technique. Um, high control, but low authenticity. The other end of that spectrum is a press conference. High authenticity, but low control. And so working along a continuum, you have a dozen choices uh, that we document in the book on the method of delivery get those things right, you may have to cycle back through message, messenger, and method a few times, but those get you on the road to recovery if you do those well and in that sequence. Very cool. I, I will say, you know, working in crisis, a lot of times the lack of clarity and, um, you know, um, the fogginess that we work in is really challenging. So it's, it's comforting as a crisis comms person uh, to know that there is a process to which you can manage a, manage a crisis. So um, I actually was one of the, I think one of the first people that got to read the book, right, Jeff? Yeah, you were, you were one of my um, reviewers. Yeah. Yeah. And it, um, you know, we don't get a lot of perks in this, in this gig, but that was certainly one of them. 
And, uh, you know, I, I really liked it. I think, um, I think having that process is going to be something that's so useful going forward. And, you know, one other thing that surprised me, Jeff, is we have worked together for too many years now, and I still learn weird, weird things about you from time to time. Like in the book, I learned that you have actually seen a corpse in person up close. Wow. Yeah, I was, um, this when I was working at Motorola, and uh, unfortunately, we had a, a chemical truck driver drive into the back of the facility and he had uh he was actually manipulating the valves at the back of the vehicle and had a massive heart attack um so sudden and so extraordinary that he latched on to the valves of the truck and that's where he was crouched for about eight hours before we found him and so um, when you go back and you view that, you see it for the first time, you think, what just got, what escaped from that truck that killed that guy? So that was one of those scenes where I felt super lucky because we had such a well-practiced and um, really great, uh, from a culture standpoint, rapid response team at Motorola boy, we could read each other's minds and we knew what to do. And um, there's a lot that could have been said and gone wrong in that scenario. And we contained that issue pretty well. Unfortunately, of course, it comes with a fatality, but those are the kinds of incidents and episodes that galvanize the capability of a rapid response team. And they, um, it's hard to learn the, all the techniques that are in the book, even though it's spelled out very sequentially in very logical order, um, you've got to you got to feel it and be in it in order to in order to really get good at it. Which, by the way, I should say, I'll use that moment to segue. We're gonna feel it and get into it because the reason that we're here is not because of Breaking Bad News. It's because this is Recall of the Month. It is. It is. That's right. And we will we will get to that. I promise. But. Um, before we move off Breaking Bad News too fast, there is a resource that's related to the book that's featured in the book that I really think our listeners would find a lot of value in. I'm talking about this awesome diagnostic tool. Of course, Jeff loves models. It's called the Cassandra Calculator. Jeff, can you tell us more about that? Oh, well, a little bit about Cassandra, just for background, and that's maybe an unusual name to people, but Cassandra was a prophetess in ancient Greek, there's a whole mythology around Cassandra. And she had a blessing that was also a curse. Cassandra could tell the future. The problem for old Cassandra, though, was that when she said it uh, and told people the future, no one would believe her. And so the challenge for a person who's delivering warnings like Cassandra was, very much like crisis communications people have to do. Uh, when we talk about, hey, these things could happen, we need to have messaging, um, is that you've got to have some attributes that allow you to be an insider. That's your rapid response team culture. And you can't get too far out ahead of yourself. Those are the lessons and a few more that we learned from the experience of Cassandra. But what we've done is take those lessons and turn them into an algorithm-based tool. There are five components to our 
Cassandra calculator. And they include scoring on how ready is your rapid response team. And you get a score for that. Then you get a score for what is your brand's goodwill in the general sentiment in the world today? Are you a beloved brand? Remember, Jenny, um, Bluebell ice cream? Oh, sure. Beloved brand, beloved brand. And if any other brand had gone through the same crisis, they had a listeria outbreak, ended up with three fatalities back in 2015. But um, if any other brand had endured that, will they still be around? No good, uh, I mean, Bluebell's goodwill was so overpowering that it um, created a fan base, almost a halo effect around that that allowed it to endure. So that's a part of the Cassandra calculator as well. We can use our, um, our tech stack to go scrape news, look at social, and give you, give you essentially a sentiment rating on the goodwill of your brand. That gives you a score. Then you start working down issue by issue into questions like, what's your exposure to this issue? Um, what are the uh, potential financial implications? What's the severity of the issue? And so you start adding all those things together into this algorithm and it spits out a score. The score gives you a sense of your vulnerability and your need to shore up a particular area of your operations or issues. And that can be anything from food safety practices to external activists who don't like the kinds of food that you serve or the way you serve it. So all kinds of interesting things that can, that can be calculated inside of the Cassandra calculator. Wow, that is, that's super cool. I think um, that's a really neat tool and one that I hope brands will get a lot of use of out of. Um, and maybe, ooh, I have an idea. What if we applied the Cassandra calculator to this month's recall of the month? That'd be fun. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> I love the idea. Okay, we can do that. The challenge that we have, and everybody should just know this, that um, nobody wants to see their Cassandra calculator score. All right? It's uh, always bad news. So it's kind of like weighing yourself after New Year's. You, you just don't want to do it. <laughs> Well, that's okay. We'll do it for them. How about that? That's fine. That's good. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> well, um, are you going to tell us then who we're going to score? Oh, I guess. Yeah, we should do that, huh? Well, first, let me give you a hint. Our recall of the month was selected because history repeated itself. Hmm. History repeated history itself. History repeated itself. Okay. Yep. So why am I talking about history? Well, if uh, anyone listened to last month's podcast, then you might remember that we talked about um, spending some time on this edition talking about the history of food safety. Well, yeah, that's, that's right. We were talking about the history and the, um, it was the formation of the Pure Food and Drug Act. You know what caught my attention on that? It was the, um, there was a fantastic episode on public television. I think it was the American experience that show. I love that show. Um, and it talked all about the 
uh, all the things that led up to the Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906. I think, is that where you got this? Yep, yep, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's important for us to know what the what the history of food safety is in the U.S. so we know where we came from and why why we're here. So I won't bore you with all the details. I think we could talk for hours on food safety history here, but there's five big dates that are important to remember. The first is 1862, and that's when the USDA and FDA were both formed. Our buddy Abe Lincoln was the one who is credited for forming those entities. Yeah, so 1862. Yeah, I didn't know that one. That's a, that's a good piece of trivia. Yep. So that's when it all started. The biggie that you mentioned, Jeff, is uh, the second date, 1906, and that's the Pure Food and Drug Act, which gave the federal government the authority to regulate foods other than meat and poultry. So that's what the U.S. I'm sorry. Well, that's what the FDA is today. So that was a real, really big piece of just monumental legislation. Um, but not until um, the next date, 1970, that's our third date to remember, that's when the CDC began keeping records on foodborne illness. So crazy to think that it's 64 years after the FDA was, um, was formed in this sweeping legislation, we still weren't keeping records on foodborne illness, which is just wild to me. Um, but that 1970 date really marks the beginning of modern data collection for foodborne illness outbreaks. So that's a biggie. Wow, yeah. Fourth big date to remember is 1973, because that was the first major food recall in the U.S. And it was a, um, it was a big nationwide outbreak on canned mushrooms and more than 75 million cans of mushrooms were removed from store shelves. So that happened in 1973. And the fifth and final date that's really important to remember here is 2011. And I think most food brands probably remember this like it was yesterday because Mm. it was such sweeping legislation. And that of course is the Food Safety Modernization Act or FSMA was signed into law by Obama. And the idea behind FSMA was to um, really allow food safety programs to focus on preventative measures rather than being reactionary when an outbreak occurs. So um, certainly um, burdensome on the food industry. It, um, It has some very stringent requirements and there was a lot of back and forth and push back over this piece of legislation. But ultimately the goal is to prevent outbreaks rather than just simply respond to them. Yeah, major milestone from a policy standpoint on the food safety front. But it's, a, it's really um, interesting to track your dates. Uh, only five major inflection points on the historical calendar that has led us to the practices that are uh, the food safety practices and the way we communicate about food in the industry. It's really, um, it doesn't feel like it's had um, tremendous tectonic shifts, but it's been a slow and careful process all these years. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's also interesting to think about how, while it's been a slow process, we also have not been formally monitoring and regulating food safety in our country for 
all that long. I mean, the yeah. first real date of um, any kind of monitoring was 1862. And, it, and really and truly, it wasn't until the Pure Food and Drug, Drug Act of 1906 that there was really safety measures put into place. Between 1862 and 1906, it was kind of the wild, wild west in, in the food industry. And I think we're going to actually talk a little bit more about that on our next episode and, and dive deeper into what was happening during that time. But it's a relatively uh, new thing in terms of policy in our country. But um, there's also a lot of evidence out there that shows that food safety has been something that even ancient civilizations paid attention to. Oh. Um, you know, there's a great resource out there from the Institute of Food Technologists, um, IFT. They've got some really cool resources. So if anybody wants to do more reading, I would definitely recommend checking them out. Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. And I love the history of this subject. It reminds me, too, that the Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906 was created in the wake of Breaking Bad News. Do you remember the famous book back then? Not off the top of my head. <laughs> that's a that's a curveball. Now, it was uh, The Jungle about the meatpacking industry oh, in Chicago. Yeah. Uh -huh. that, um, there was a big movement leading up to 1906, but it was the jungle uh, that really galvanized public opinion in favor of food safety. And, you know, we, we haven't even talked about our old buddy, uh, Harvey Washington Wiley, the first USDA commercial, but our commissioner. So I think that's going to be part of next month, huh? It sure is. I, that's good. And I'm, I'm loving this, but I'm, uh, I, I've done or you've done what we often do, which was, which is, uh, I believe we've gotten ourselves off topic. <laughs> I don't know what all this has, uh, this history has to do with recall of the month. You said history is repeating itself, but are we going to find out what, uh, who the recall is now? I think we will. Finally, finally, the suspense is torture. I know. So let's take a okay. quick break and we'll do, we'll do the reveal when we come back. All right. We'll be right back. This episode of Breaking Bad News is sponsored by no one because no brands want to be associated with this topic. And can you blame them? The team from Apron Food PR, however, is proud to step into the vacuum. You can learn more about Apron Food PR's brand protection and promotion work by visiting apronfoodpr.com. Welcome back to the second half of our Recall of the Month featuring January 2020 recalls. On Recall the Month, we dive deep into how the news media has treated a particular recall, and we look for patterns to figure out why a certain recall got a lot of attention. My partner, Jenny Gregorsik, food safety expert, HACCP certified, all those cool things is with us. And Jenny's been leading us up to this month's Recall of the Month by saying history repeated itself. So she's posed a riddle to build suspense. Jenny, are you going to tell us what it means? I sure will. I know I've made you wait so long for this. <laughs> this month's recall of the month goes to a repeat offender. See? History. Oh, repeat, I see. repeat offender. Yeah. Yep. They've actually been talked about on this very show before. And this month's recall of the month is Astro Chef. Oh, Astro Chef. What did you do? <laughs> Astro Chef recalled their pep 
pepperoni stuffed pizza sandwich products because it um, was misbranded and had undeclared allergens. So they recalled about 7,300 pounds of this pizza uh, because it contained soy, which didn't oh. say on the label and soy is a known allergen. So right. uh, they classified this as a class one recall, deemed it a high health risk. And, um, you know, they actually found out about it when uh, they started getting consumer complaints about um, this product that was labeled as, they called it a mega sandwich pepperoni stuffed pizza. That sounds awful. Uh, yeah. um, okay. But it was actually maybe, a meat. Maybe meat we ought to start stuff. there. Uh, yeah. we, we should start at that name. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> Why were you people buying this anyway? But no, just kidding. Um, but it was actually a meatball stuffed pizza sandwich. Um, so no, you know, adverse reactions, nobody sickened, anything like that. Um, but you might remember that Astro Chef had another recall in September for pretty much the very same thing. They had an issue where they recalled their chicken pub style entrees also due to misbranding and undeclared allergens. Um, so this one was also a recall um, where the product contained soy and it wasn't declared on the product label. So that was uh, about 11,000 pounds of these frozen, frozen entrees. Um, so, um, oh, and the in interesting thing about that one too is it was, um, it was chicken labeled as beef or beef labeled as chicken. So it was completely the wrong product too. So I think they've got some, some issues with, um, with labeling and, and branding for sure. Yeah, that is a real quality control thing. And what you're talking about, 7,300 pounds, 11,500 or so pounds, not giant recalls, but these seem to be kind of unforced errors, if you will. Uh, that, and if you're a repeat offender, you, maybe we need to create something like recall of the month ankle bracelet for these guys. <laughs> that's a that's a great idea. We should we should write our friends at USDA and FDA and pitch that to them. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and it, it, you're right. It's it's really hard on brands when they have a repeat recall. I'm sure when they got the news that they were going to have a second recall, it's like, oh man. Um, you know, or a lot of times what happens is a recall starts smaller and then it gets expanded. Um, both of those scenarios, they just chip away at consumer trust. I mean, think about all that Chipotle went through. Imagine if their food safety issues all happened in just the course of one day rather than spread out over the course of many months. I know that would have been the worst day ever for them. Truly, truly terrible but then it would have been over. And I think consumers are a lot more forgiving after one transgression, um, but their patience gets shorter and shorter for re repeat offenders. Yeah, we've never really been able to quantify the trust barometer uh, for food brands and understand the erosion, how quickly that happens. I think you're right though. It's just sort of in your, you can feel it in your own guts. You say, you know what? I've heard about these guys once heard about this brand a second time. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. And all of a sudden, just in that moment inside of a consumer's head, you've got yourself a problem. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, uh, you know, fortunately for AstroChef, this recall just, it didn't generate a ton of media coverage. I think we saw about 60 stories total on, on the recall. Oh, that doesn't, yeah, that's not unusual. Did they have any spikes or, or why do you think that was? You know, I, we talked about this a little bit last month. Um, undeclared allergen recalls happen an awful lot. They're very regular. Um, and I think, again, it goes back to the better detection methods that we have now. Um, and this recall didn't get anybody sick, which is great. Oh, good. Um, and that is, that's also something that drives media coverage as well. Yeah, that makes sense. And we, it was several episodes ago that we talked about the primary drivers of media coverage. This, this is missing some of those crucial components. Mm -hmm. Still, it's a nice pick. I like the pick. I, I'm impressed by your, your grasp of history and how you've stitched this all together, Jenny. This is, uh, it's been very educational. Oh, well, I'm, I'm very glad. Thanks, Jeff. And, you know, I think that's, that's all I've got for today. I think next month we're going to talk about your buddy, uh, buddy Harvey, right? Oh, yeah. We're going to take a trip back into that uh, 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act and celebrate, Harvey. Again, encourage all of our listeners to find that American Experience episode on PBS. It's just phenomenal. Great storytelling and, and so important to the, the things that we take for granted every day that um, I loved it and I'm excited to talk more about it. So that's going to be a ton of fun. Jenny, thank you so much. Great recall of the month pick. Awesome job. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next month. Thank you for listening to Breaking Bad News. Subscribe and learn more at apronfoodpr.com. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. It really helps.